Subscribe to this podcast and more at skidmore.substack.com. Sketches from Scripture presents Great News, a teaching series from the Gospel of Matthew. The Jewish nation had put their trust in the God of Abraham, the law of Moses, and the kingdom of David. But by the first century, they were under Roman rule, their moral culture was eroding, and it seemed their God was hidden away behind gates and curtains. Suddenly, an unknown manual laborer from a small village hits the streets with a fantastic announcement. The Gospel according to Matthew tells the story of a self-proclaimed rabbi from Nazareth who took Galilee by storm, then Judea, then Jerusalem, then Samaria, then the whole Roman world to the entire earth. In his many teachings and stories, Rabbi Yeshua brings but one message. Your heart and life can be changed because God, King of the universe, is right in front of you. So follow me. This is Great News. In Matthew 4:19, we hear Jesus say his first words to his disciples. Do you remember what they were? He says, "Follow me, and I will make you fishers of men." So, the first words of Jesus's gospel ministry are in 4:17, just a couple of verses before that, where he says, "Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand." We've talked a lot about repentance. We've talked a lot about righteousness, which is a big theme of Matthew. We've talked a lot about um separating yourselves from darkness, themes that go all the way back to Genesis 1. We've uh, talked a lot about what God's kingdom means, that in Matthew, kingdom really means the reign of God, not so much a geographical place or even a group of people, but that it really has to do with the fact that God is king. And like um, other ancient kings who would announce that they would be arriving soon and the people would rush to prepare so that when they show up, everything will be ready for their arrival. Um, John the Baptist comes announcing, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Repent for the reign of God is near. And then Jesus shows up preaching the same thing. Matthew 4, 17, repent, change your hearts and minds. Turn away from the life you've been living to the life God wants you to live. Turn away from sin toward righteousness, toward holiness. Repent because the reign of God, it's here. It's right here. It's at hand. It's near. It's nigh. It's close. You can reach out and touch it. That's what these phrases mean. And so in 419, he says to a specific group of disciples, follow me and I will make you fishers of men. So we talked at the very beginning of this series on Matthew, uh, I reminded you of you know speech class that you had in college, where um, the first thing you learn is you tell them what you're going to tell them, then you tell them, then you tell them what you told them, right? So we're going to do the same thing uh, here in Matthew. That's what the writer of Matthew is doing. That's what Jesus is doing in his ministry. He's telling his disciples, okay, here's what we're going to do. And then throughout Matthew, you see them do that. And then at the end of Matthew, Jesus says, okay, here's what we did. Now you go do that and teach others to do that. We call that part the Great Commission. So between Matthew 4.19, follow me and I will make you fishers of men, and the Great Commission, Matthew 28, go um, baptizing, etc. So between these, 
we see Jesus living out the very thing that he wants us to become. So there are many things that Jesus is that we are not. Jesus is God in the flesh. We are not. Uh, Jesus can forgive sins. We do not have the power to do that. Jesus is king. We are not. Jesus is God. We are not. So there are many things that Jesus is that we are not. But there are many things that Jesus does that we are to do. Uh, Jesus comes down in human form to show us what God is like and to show us the kind of relationship that we should have with each other and with God. Remember the two greatest commandments, to love God with everything and to love our neighbor as ourself. So uh, as we've talked about, Matthew is broken up into um, three big chunks, Jesus being born, Jesus being alive, and then the, the, the passion, the death, burial, resurrection. The majority of Matthew is that middle section, Jesus's life and ministry. And it goes from uh, Matthew 3 to about Matthew 24, 25, somewhere around there. And that middle section, that, that sort of B part, is made up of five, um, five chapters, if you will, uh, five sections. And they revolve around five different discourses, five sort of lectures that Jesus gives, five teachings. And those teachings, which we've discussed a few times, it's the kingdom being announced. And so each discourse is preceded by a narrative. So we see Jesus arriving on the scene in Matthew 3 and 4. And then the sort of kingdom announcement narrative, the discourse, uh, the teaching is the Sermon on the Mount. The kingdom has arrived. And so now this is the way the kingdom is going to look when everything is operating as it should. So Jesus is announcing the kingdom and announcing this is the way you ought to live. <clears throat> Put the things that I'm saying into practice. We've been in this second section now as of last uh, Monday, talking about kingdom authority. So in chapters eight and nine, we saw story after story after story of Jesus having authority over different things, over evil spirits, over sickness, different kinds of sickness, over death even. Uh, we saw him forgiving sins and using healing as a sign that he's able to forgive sins. We can see him uh, heal someone who can't walk. It's a little different. To, we, we can't see if someone is forgiven of their sins. So when Jesus shows he has authority over someone's physical well-being, he is demonstrating that he also has that same authority over their spirituality, over their soul, over their judgment. So all these stories that are compacted together, uh, we don't suspect that they happened in the chronological order, the way that they appear in Matthew, because they're brought all together again to make an argument. Remember who Matthew's audience likely is. Matthew's audience is first century Jews, people familiar with Jewish law, people familiar with Jewish scripture, people familiar with Jewish teaching, and uh, people who are worshiping in the temple. They know who God is. They understand all that, but they also have been set in their ways for a long time. And they have been put inside sort of a box of religion that's largely created by Pharisees, scribes, Sadducees, all the different uh, sects, all the different divisions of Judaism that were around at the time, very similar to denominationalism today, where everybody's kind of boxed off in their own thing and not a lot of cooperation, a lot of different teachings Everyone's got a little something kind of wonky with the things that they uh, teach and believe. And Jesus has to come in and say, hey, 
uh, we're going to go back to the original idea of the law, God's original desire for law, for love, for the way you should treat each other, for judgment, etc. And so you have narrative and then you have discourse, narrative and then discourse. So Matthew 8 and 9 is the narrative. It's Jesus going around healing. So now we're at the kingdom authority discourse. So what is the teaching that Jesus is going to give that demonstrates kingdom authority or that involves kingdom authority? Well, let's take a look at that. So we're looking at Matthew chapter 10. So again, just to quickly review the long review we just did. Jesus has said, follow me and I'll make you fishers of men. Go with me and I will teach you how to make disciples as I'm making you a disciple. So discipleship is Jesus's mission to show the disciples how to be disciples, how to make disciples, how to live as a follower of Jesus, how to teach other people how to trust and follow Jesus. That's the mission. Jesus says, follow me. I'll show you how to do that. So we're now in the middle of doing that. And we are in a section on kingdom authority. Jesus has authority over all these things. So what does that mean? So Matthew chapter 10. Here's the text. We're looking at the, I've got the CSB pulled up. So that's what I'll be reading. We'll read the whole chapter and then I'll come back and make some notes. Summoning his 12 disciples, he gave them authority over unclean spirits to drive them out and to heal every disease and sickness. These are the names of the 12 apostles. First, Simon, who was called Peter, and Andrew, his brother, James, the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother, Philip and Bartholomew, Thomas and Matthew, the tax collector, James, the son of Alphaeus and Thaddeus, Simon, the zealot, and Judas Iscariot, who also betrayed him. Jesus sent out these 12 after giving them instructions. Don't take the road that leads to the Gentiles and don't enter any Samaritan town. Instead, go to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. As you go, proclaim the kingdom of heaven has come near. Heal the sick, raise the dead, cleanse those with leprosy, drive out demons. Freely you received, freely give. Don't acquire gold, silver, or copper for your money belts. Don't take a traveling bag for the road or an extra shirt, sandals, or a staff for the worker is worthy of his food. When you enter any town or village, find out who is worthy and stay there until you leave. Greet a household when you enter it. And if the household is worthy, let your peace be on it. But if it is unworthy, let your peace return to you. If anyone does not welcome you or listen to your words, shake the dust off your feet when you leave that house or town. Truly, I tell you, it will be more tolerable on the day of judgment for the land of Sodom and Gomorrah than for that town. Verse 16. Look, I'm sending you out like sheep among wolves. Therefore, be as shrewd as serpents and as innocent as doves. Beware of them because they will hand you over to local courts and flog you in their synagogues. You will even be brought before governors and kings because of me to bear witness to them and to the Gentiles. But when they hand you over, don't worry about how or what you are to speak, for you will be given what to say at that hour, because it isn't you speaking, but the spirit of your father is speaking through you. Brother will betray brother to death and a father his child. Children will raise up against parents and have them put to death. You will be hated by everyone because of my name. 
but the one who endures to the end will be saved. When they persecute you in one town, flee to another. For truly, I tell you, you will not have gone through the towns of Israel before the Son of Man comes. A disciple is not above his teacher or a slave above his master. It is enough for a disciple to become like his teacher and a slave like his master. If they called the head of the house Beelzebub, the how much more the members of his household. Therefore, don't be afraid of them, since there is nothing covered that won't be uncovered and nothing hidden that won't be made known. What I tell you in the dark, speak in the light. When you hear in a, what you hear in a whisper, proclaim on the housetops. Don't fear those who kill the body, but are not able to kill the soul. Rather, fear him who is able to destroy both soul and body in hell. Aren't two sparrows sold for a penny, yet not one of them falls to the ground without your father's consent? But even the hairs of your head have all been counted. So don't be afraid. You are worth more than many sparrows. Therefore, everyone who will acknowledge me before others, I will also acknowledge him before my father in heaven. But whoever denies me before others, I will also deny him before my father in heaven. Don't assume that I came to bring peace on the earth. I did not come to bring peace, but a sword. For I came to turn a man against his father, a daughter against her mother, a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law, and a man's enemies will be the members of his household. The one who loves a father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. The one who loves a son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. And whoever doesn't take up his cross and follow me is not worthy of me. Anyone who finds his life will lose it. And anyone who loses his life because of me will find it. The one who welcomes you welcomes me, and the one who welcomes me welcomes him who sent me. Anyone who welcomes a prophet because he is a prophet will receive a prophet's reward, and anyone who welcomes a righteous person because he's righteous will receive a righteous person's reward. And whoever gives even a cup of cold water to one of these little ones because he is a disciple, truly I tell you, he will never lose his reward. Okay, that's Matthew chapter 10. So let's go back and just look at a couple of things. First of all, notice how quickly the word authority appears in this text. It's right in the first verse. Summoning his 12 disciples, he gave them authority. And what did he give them authority to do? He gave them authority to uh, over unclean spirits, to drive them out, to heal every disease and every sickness. So later when he commands them to do that, we have already established in the narrative, not in Jesus's teaching yet, but in the in the black words, not the red words, we've already established Jesus has given them the authority to do so. He's given them the power to do that. So they're going to be able to do that because Jesus has given them that authority. Then it names the 12 apostles and says, first, Simon. And that word first, you shouldn't put too much weight on that. That doesn't mean that Peter is the most important. Uh, it doesn't even mean that Peter was chronologically first. It just means first First up in the list is Peter. So don't put much too much weight on that word first. And notice here how there are uh, brothers together, Peter and Andrew, James and John, and the rest of them appear to be kind of coupled up. So I don't know if this was kind of a buddy system that they traveled in twos. Uh, we do see them going out two by two uh, if you go and read the Luke account, you can see being sent out in pairs. So perhaps that's what is being um, talked about here. Bartholomew appears in all 12 listings of the apostles, but um, that's it. That's, that's the only place that we hear about Bartholomew. And so one person who does not appear in these listings is a person named Nathaniel. So if you go read the Gospel of John, you'll see that Philip goes and gets, uh, I believe it's his brother, Nathaniel. 
And so you have Philip and Nathaniel. You have Philip and Bartholomew paired up here. And so um, a lot of people think Bartholomew is Nathaniel. Um, if you know much about the Jewish language, you know that Bar means son. And so Bartholomew just means son of Ptolemy. And so it may be that his full name was Nathaniel Bartholomew. Nathaniel Bartholomew. It's kind of a mouthful to say. Um, so a lot of people think Nathaniel, Bartholomew, the same person and uh, that these guys are brothers. Don't know. We don't have any evidence. I don't think that the rest of them are brothers. But um, so uh, so there's the list. Um, going on down from the list of the 12. So I, I should say, too, there are more disciples than this. I mean, if you've read any of the gospel, you know that there's uh, women who are following Jesus around, you know, people like Lazarus, um, other people who uh, accept who Jesus is and, and, and want to follow him, repent, change their lives, people like Zacchaeus, things like of that nature. <clears throat> so there is sort of little d disciple. That's a, a large group of people. You know, there's 120 people in the upper room in, in the opening of Acts. But here there's just 12. And uh, if you again, if you read the account in Luke, what you see is that the 12 are selected out of the group of disciples, people that are already kind of following Jesus. And so these 12 are meant to be leaders. They're, um, the text doesn't really say this, but it seems kind of obvious. They're meant to represent the 12 tribes. 12 is obviously a very important number in um, Judaism. So once again, you have Matthew really appealing to his Jewish audience by pointing out, hey, here's your new 12 leaders, just the same as you had the 12 patriarchs. These are now the 12 patriarchs of uh, Jesus's ministry. And so you have these 12 men that are um, brought out and set apart. So we, we've talked before all the way back to the Genesis series, how the, the the term holy means set apart, set apart for a certain purpose. These 12 men have been pulled out, set apart, set aside for really important work. They're given special authority and they're sent out. So one of the first things that Jesus says to him is don't take the road that leads to the Gentiles. This is in verse five. Don't enter any Samaritan town. Later, if you look at uh, past verse 16, down in verse 18, he says, you will be brought before governors and kings because of me to bear witness to them and to the Gentiles. Well, now, Jesus just told them not to go to the places where the Gentiles were, but now he's saying that they're going to preach before Gentiles. So what's happening here? Why are these in conflict? Well, as we've already looked at in the Gospel of Matthew, Matthew's not in chronological order. It's not intended to be. It's making an argument. And so the argument here that's being made in this discourse, what's called the missionary discourse, or we could call it the discipleship discourse, uh, Jesus is saying, here's how you're going to Go and preach and teach and make disciples. So what Matthew has done is he's taken the different things that Jesus has said about making disciples and he's put them all in a single discourse. So what seems very clear is that what happens in 16 and afterward is from some other time, that all this didn't happen together at one time. One way that you know that is when Jesus was alive, certainly pre his arrest, his disciples were not being arrested and martyred, you know, they might've had trouble here and there. They might've been asked to leave a town. Jesus, certainly people came after him a couple of times, but here he's talking in verse 16 and onward about persecutions that are going to happen and preaching to governors and, and these kinds of things. And that isn't something really that was happening during most of Jesus's 
ministry, but it is something that definitely happened in the book of Acts. You see this happening to these 12 men a lot in the book of Acts. And you see Jesus preparing them for that. Uh, like in the gospel of John, you see him talking about a lot of these kinds of things at the last supper as he's about to leave them. So what kind of seems to be happening here is you have Jesus, the way he approached these 12 at the beginning of their relationship at the beginning of their ministry together. And then things from 16 onward might be more towards the end of their relationship together. After they had done some of the previous things, going into towns and preaching and doing some of the healing and experiencing what that brings. And then as time goes on and opposition increases and time for Jesus's death draw nears, he starts teaching some of these other things, preparing them for what's to come after he leaves. And I, I think one way that we can show that all of this applies to us also. So this does not apply just to the 12. There are some things that apply just to the 12, but there are some things that apply just to us. So has Jesus given us specifically the power to um, to heal and to cast out demons and those kinds of things? I don't know. I don't know the answer to that. I, I, if I had to quickly answer it, I'd probably say, no, no, he didn't specifically give me that um, power. He didn't come to me in a dream or a vision or anything and bestow that kind of power on me. I've never done any of those things that I'm aware of. Um, so I don't, it seems like those things were for these men at a certain time, or um, at least for the certain mission that they were on. But there are other things here that clearly are meant for all of us, particularly going into towns, teaching, preaching, telling people the good news, telling people that they need to repent and if they repent, there's good news. They get to take hold of the reign of God. They get to live with God uh, as their authority, with God as their king. And so that part is very relevant for us. And the story that we see of discipleship from Matthew 419 all the way to the Great Commission in Matthew 28, follow me, I'll turn you into disciple makers. Hey, I turned you into disciple makers, go make disciples. That's sort of the frame of Matthew from a discipleship standpoint. And so if we're going to live that out in our own lives, then we need to see that this discourse has some very important things for us. And some might claim, some might say that this discourse really is only for the 12 and that the average churchgoer doesn't really need to bother about a lot of these things. Well, I would argue against that. We, we can see that some of this must be for us. Uh, Jesus says here in... Um, Verse 23, when he's in the midst of talking about persecution, and he says, you will not have gone through the towns of Israel before the Son of Man comes. So it seems like what Jesus is saying here is when Jesus comes back and fulfills that Son of Man figure uh, from the uh, prophecies of Daniel, that's where that phrase Son of Man comes from. When Jesus comes back to judge the last day, you still will not have gone through all the towns in Israel. Now, I don't think he's saying this just to the 12, but he's saying this to all the people that would come after. Remember, Jerusalem was destroyed just a few decades after these stories. Um, the church had begun to grow already considerably and had grown well outside the boundaries of Israel. But had it gone to every town, had it been told to every person? Uh, even now, there is a movement called the Back to Jerusalem movement, which involves a lot of the Chinese churches. They're very excited about this because if you think about how um, uh, Christianity has has moved, I'm going to grab this globe real quick. 
I'm glad I happen to have this right within reach. And I'm glad I've got this extra wide viewing angle for you. Um, so we're looking at above Africa here. Here is the Mediterranean Sea, and here is Israel. Okay, so <clears throat> Israel began and spread all throughout the Mediterranean. And where did it go? Well, it really went into Europe, a lot into Europe and really spread this way. Went some into Africa a little bit. Um, and then it went to the Americas, right? With all the colonization and that sort of thing. And it spread all throughout North America, lots of uh, Catholics and uh, different um, Christian uh, denominations down in South America as well. And so it spread all throughout the Americas. And so you see there's this sort of westward move of Christianity. And as Christianity has grown, the Americas have sent out missionaries to different places. And where are we sending them? Well, we're sending them back over here to places like China, to places like India. Uh, I've got missionary friends that are in New Zealand down here in the Southern Hemisphere. And um, I've got a ministry I love very much that supports Eastern Europe, which is a lot of the Soviet Union. Well, Soviet Union comes all the way over here to Alaska and Japan and these areas. Uh, Korea is a place where people are really um, praying for the people of North Korea. But there's a lot of Christianity, very strong Christianity going on in South Korea. I think there's a single church in South Korea that has like a million members. It's crazy. A lot of faithful Christians uh, there. A lot of Christianity in the islands down here. And it's just sort of creeping westward. And now what we see is the church is really growing in places like Iraq, Iran, Syria, uh, Turkey. It's really growing in Africa, places that had been under the influence particularly of Islam um, and communism. Now is really becoming, uh, becoming places where Christianity is just on wildfire. And it's just kind of all coming back around to the West. And so this back to Jerusalem movement that a lot of the Chinese churches uh, are excited about is rather than sending people back to America, although we're getting to the point where we need missionaries to come here as well, aren't we? They're sending their people westward into the Middle East and to be missionaries, uh, sending them west, sending them into India and Pakistan, etc. And so it's a really beautiful thing. And so what you can, what you can, uh, what you can know by thinking about that is uh, connecting it to this verse right here in chapter 23, where Jesus says, hey, the gospel's got to go everywhere. The gospel's got to go to all the towns in Israel. Does he mean the nation of Israel? Or does he mean every place where an Israelite is? Because certainly uh, at that time, and even more so today, the uh, Israelites are scattered all over the world. And so it seems clear through the instructions that are written here, that these are for everyone. Consider too, Matthew, the supposed writer of this gospel, is right here in this list. This was written after Jesus had uh, been crucified, buried, resurrected, and ascended. Jesus is gone from earth in person at this time. And so what you have is Matthew giving instructions to people like us, people who are going to read this later, uh, probably written in the early 60s, possibly, possibly later than that even. And so you're reading this at a time when um, you're into the sort of second and third generation, not in birth, but in terms of discipleship. 
And so why would you need to teach these things? Is it just a history lesson? No, it doesn't seem to be. It seems to be teaching. It seems to be instruction. And so all of these things really are for us today. So Jesus has said to you personally, listener, will you follow me? Do you consider yourself a follower of Jesus? If the answer to that question is yes, then this discourse is for you. What's the point of the discourse? Well, again, like we said, it's probably done at two different times, sort of a beginning and an ending. So you can kind of, as you read through it, it's almost like you advance through time, probably the teaching that he gave to his disciples about how to go out and make disciples. And so what you have here really is, is a plan, is a timeline of how you ought to think about things, how you ought to approach disciple making. So one great place to begin disciple making is with your fellow Christians. Many of us grew up in kind of a Christian nation, kind of a Christian culture. And as David Young likes to say, we're not the home team anymore. Christians aren't the home team anymore. We're not the ones that are deciding what's on television, what's on Netflix. We're not the ones who are deciding uh, what's on the radio station. We're not the one deciding uh, what happens on Sundays and uh, what people do with their time. And uh, we're not the ones defining what family is, what marriage is anymore, what sexuality is. People aren't looking to, to, to Christians for that anymore. So those of us that grew up in a Christian culture, that was a great blessing for us. But that's not the way of the world anymore. And so people are going to have to be discipled intentionally if we're going to continue to trust and follow Jesus. So who are the people around you that you can help trust and follow Jesus? This means kind of two things. One is just any kind of general encouragement, support that you give to somebody helps them trust and follow Jesus. That's discipleship. But there's a more intentional part. There's a more intentional part where you are reading scripture with them. When you're reading scripture together and helping each other really diligently through vulnerability, through accountability, um, through a deep loving relationship, helping people trust and follow Jesus. So we're in this book of Matthew. We're talking about uh, the kingdom talking about Jesus as king, and we're talking about, particularly in this chapter, but really all of Matthew, but this chapter is really kind of seems like it's, it's the, the big instructions for it, discipleship, and, and in particular, relationship-based discipleship. So they're not just going and preaching, but they're going and, and they're finding homes that accept them, and they're, they're not to take anything with them. They're to find a place where someone's going to give them food and clothing and give them a place to stay and welcome them into their community, welcome them into their home. Uh, they're, they're meant to uh, touch and heal and meet spiritual needs and meet physical needs as they go out. It's about relationship. It's about creating a relationship with the people they're serving. And if the people that they try to serve don't want a relationship, Jesus says, hey, they don't want it. Shake the dust off and move on. That's not necessarily an insult to them. It's just to say, don't waste your time. Just like in the Sermon on the Mount when he says pigs before uh, swine, uh, pearls before swine. It's you're wasting your time. Um, don't try to teach a, a pig to sing. My mom used to say, right? Waste your time and annoys the pig. Right? This is what Jesus is saying. Look, if people don't want to accept what you have to say, move on. Go to some other place. If they're persecuting you in some place, that's a big sign. They don't want you there. Move on to another town, right? And so with all this talk of Jesus being king and relationship uh, based disciple making. Uh, it's very prescient that I received this book in the mail today. 
This is from David Young, who's our preacher at North Boulevard. This is his new book that came out a few days ago. Uh, he gifted me a copy of it. And I just got it in the mail today from him and Julie. And it's called King Jesus and the Beauty of Obedience-Based Discipleship. And it's just really talking about obedience, relationships, and uh, the, the kingship of Jesus. So um, if that's something that is of interest to you, you pick it up and, and read it yet. I just got it today, so I haven't read it yet. I do know that he uh, refers to me, he doesn't mention me uh, by name, but then just talking about his son, Jonathan, and our relationship together. And so I was very honored uh, to have been mentioned in, in uh, David's book. And he wrote a nice little uh, signed thing to me here at the beginning, which I appreciate very much. Of course, I love the time that I've spent with Jonathan, Jonathan, his son, uh, the time that we spent together, Jonathan helped me do some uh, video stuff while we were at the church. But uh, Jonathan really was um, in a tough spot at the time. And Jonathan's talked about it openly. I'm not telling tales out of school here. And uh, the time that we spent together and the time that he spent with uh, our friend Ken, who really helped him both in, in his spirituality, but also in his physical discipline, really helped Jonathan make some breakthroughs and really helped Jonathan understand the importance of Scripture, the truth of Scripture, and uh, why he ought to trust and follow Jesus. And um, Jonathan now is an inspiration to me because there are many days where uh, I look at Jonathan and I think, I wish I was trusting and following Jesus the way that Jonathan is. Jonathan uh, and his uh, wife, they've been married, uh, I guess, a year now, maybe a little over, and they've moved to Oregon. They're planning a church out there. They have a church that meets in their apartment, and they've been weathering uh, protests and viruses and uh, all kinds of things, but they're um, really doing a lovely job out there, and I love uh, supporting their work anytime that I can that I can go. I've gotten to visit them just once, and I see them when they come into town a couple times, but they are really living this out. They took this seriously. When they read Matthew and Jesus said, okay, you follow me. And if you do that, I'm going to turn you into a disciple maker. I'm just warning you. <laughs> it's kind of a warning in 419. You follow me, you're going to get turned into a disciple maker. That's what's going to happen. And they trusted and followed Jesus. And guess what? He turned them into disciple makers. And they're out there making disciples, teaching other people how to make disciples. So, um, so going down on through here then, in this last section if we're looking at this as kind of a timeline, it starts out with Jesus sending them out on mission. It kind of ends in this talking about persecution and difficulty and um, brother will betray brother to death and a father is child. I mean, this is some pretty grim thinking here. But as we know about church history, especially just looking in the book of Acts, we know all this is true. We all we know all this happened. And we see things that Jesus says, such as um, I did not come to bring a I didn't come to being to bring peace, but a sword. He says down in verse 34, wait, I thought he was the prince of peace. What does this mean? Well, remember again, what first century Jews thought the Messiah was going to do. They thought the Messiah was going to come and defeat the Roman empire. And there would be this big time of peace under Jewish rule, under a king of David, son of David, uh, kingdom rule. That's what they were expecting. And Jesus is telling them, hey, the teaching that I'm bringing is so hated by the world, this is not going to bring peace. It's going to cause a lot of problems. So does Jesus bring peace? Absolutely. But not the peace that they were expecting. Not governmental peace. Not uh, peace uh, between uh, people in, in, in a societal context, in a political context, in a war context. 
Uh, I'm reading with a friend right now the book of Colossians. And in chapter one of Colossians, it talks about Jesus bringing peace. In fact, uh, I use this verse in uh, the opening of my my book, God Rest You Married Gentlemen. I quote the verse, pull it up here. Colossians 1.20. I've got it right here, uh, right after the title page. Colossians 1.20 in the King James says, Having made peace through the blood of his cross, by him to reconcile all things to himself. By him, I say, whether they be things in earth or things in heaven. And John Chrysostom, early church father, in his homily on this section of Colossians says, you know, that word reconcile shows the enmity. The words, having made peace, the war. And so what this is about, what John Chrysostom is saying is, Uh, Jesus is bringing reconciliation because there's division. Jesus is bringing peace because there's a war. (laughs) And so going back to Matthew 10, when Jesus says, hey, I didn't come to bring peace. What he's saying is I didn't come to make peace among the governments. I didn't come to get rid of Rome and establish the kind of kingdom that you're thinking of. The peace that Jesus brings is by reconciling us to God, by forgiving of our sins and reconciling us to each other when we show love to each other and trust and follow Jesus together. But for those that don't want to receive the message, for those that don't want to repent, for those who don't want God as their king, it's a sword and families will be ripped apart. And when that happens, Jesus warns them, when when a family starts to be ripped apart over these teachings, if you choose your family over me, it's going to be a sad day. It's going to be a sad day. You're going to lose your real life if you do that. Now, this doesn't make a whole lot of sense to a lot of you listening. Probably you probably grew up in um, America. You probably grew up, many of us in the South, many of you that are listening. And so um, it doesn't really make a lot of sense that, uh, you know, tear a family apart, right? I've got a friend who lives in a Middle Eastern nation. He'll remain nameless just for his safety. He and I spent some time reading the Bible together. I would love for him to trust and follow Jesus as I read about him in these scriptures that I believe are true. Uh, If he were to do that while he is living in his Middle Eastern nation, what would his family do to him? What would his government do to him? He was here living in the States for a while as a student. If he became a Christian here, what would have happened? Would the government have cut off his funding, told him never to come home? Would the U.S. have, since he was unable to go to school with no funding, would the U.S. have deported him to a place that wouldn't let him back in? What would have happened to him? The cost for him was very great. We don't think about that in the Bible Belt in the South, but the costs for him were very great. It's a big decision. It's a very complicated thing. And uh, so it's something that's been true throughout most cultures throughout all time. We're blessed that many of us have not had to deal with that, but also it makes us not appreciate it as much. A Christian in North Korea, I'm just going to be honest, a Christian in North Korea appreciates Jesus in a way that we never will. They love Jesus more than we can. They just do. So let's pray for our persecuted brothers and sisters. But again, how do we apply this? Well, again, in the beginning, Jesus says, you're going to go to Jews. You're not going to go to Gentiles. 
in the end, then you'll go out and you'll speak to kings and Gentiles and all kinds of people. We see that in the Great Commission. You go to all of Judea and then Samaria and then the ends of the earth, right? And so you, you can think the same way. So like I said before, you can think about your Christian friends that need discipling, your Christian friends that need encouraging, your Christian friends that need that relationship to help them trust and follow Jesus. That will give you the confidence that will show you it's super easy. That will show you things like discovery Bible study are no big deal. They're real easy to do. You don't have to be a Bible teacher. You don't have to know a bunch of stuff. You don't have to know a bunch of Bible history. You don't even have to find Israel on a globe. You, you know, as long as you can just read the passage for the evening and go through discovery Bible study, what's it say about God? What's it say about people? What am I going to do about it? Who am I going to tell about it? If you can do those four questions when you read a text, then you can, then you can disciple somebody. The, the, the text will do the teaching. Jesus will do the transformation. All you got to do is, is get them together with the word. That's your only responsibility is just to keep sowing the seed. It's just to keep getting the word in front of the people that you love, your neighbors, your family, your enemies, the people that you love, get the word in front of them. When you begin with sort of the low hanging fruit, your fellow Christians, the people that you sit next to at church or in the, in the pew, you know, behind or uh, near, when you start with that low-hanging fruit, you build the confidence, you'll build the understanding, you'll build the experience. Then you'll be more qualified to go to your neighbor who might also be a Christian, but maybe it's a little different flavor of Christian. That's okay. You can read the Bible with them. You can discuss some things. You don't have to get into all the reasons why, you know, how they worship is different than how you worship. You can save that for another time. Let's talk about Jesus at first. Let's just start there and you can go through Colossians, Ephesians, 1 Timothy, 2 Timothy with them. One of these days I'll do a series on those four books and we'll go through uh, why I use those for teaching about disciple making. But there's uh, all kinds of ways that you can begin to reach out. Once you are done with your Christian neighbor or your Christian coworker, then you can start talking with somebody who doesn't believe at all because you'll have the confidence in the scripture. You'll have read enough of it. You'll be obeying it and you'll know deep in your heart that it's true. When you say, I don't know enough to disciple somebody. I don't know enough to sit down and have a Bible study with somebody. I got to be honest. What you're really saying is, you know, the Bible needs my help. The Bible needs some help. The Bible is, is not enough and it really needs some help. And I'm not sure that I can do it. I'm sorry. That's not the right way to think. The Bible will teach. I promise the Bible will teach. We read Matthew chapter 10. I've had some comments and things, but wasn't it just clear, just right off the page, what Jesus was saying? You know, maybe a few little phrases in there. What does he mean by that? But most of it's just so clear. The Bible will teach. And when you do discovery Bible study method, what's it say about God? What's it say about people? What am I going to do about it? Who am I going to tell about it? It, it's, it makes it so easy, so easy to go through. Okay. So, um, what am I going to leave you with tonight? Here's what I want to leave you with. If you consider yourself a follower of Jesus, then these instructions are for you. You have been given some authority. Now, can you cast out demons and, and heal uh, people who are, who are blind or deaf? Or I, I don't know. Maybe you can. If you can, tell us the stories. We want to praise God because of that. But the authority you've definitely been given is to share good news with somebody else. So I want you to think of someone right now, that person that you have in your mind right now. I want you this week to begin the process of building relationship so that you can help them trust and follow Jesus. Be great if you can sit 
and over you know virtual coffee or socially distanced somewhere, meet up, meet up at a coffee shop, sit at opposite ends of the bar, however you want to do it. It'd be great if you could meet up and read some scripture together. That would be awesome. But if you would at least just reach out, if you just check in, a lot of people are not doing good right now. A lot of people are in depression. A lot of people are lonely. A lot of people are frustrated. Oh, parents that got kids going back to school, teachers that are going back to school. Talked to one of my teacher friends earlier today. She's freaking out both for her kids, like her actual biological children and her adopted children, but also her students. But she's also kind of freaking out for herself. Um, just all the, all the things that are going on. People are not really okay right now. There's not a single person that wouldn't love it if you called them, checked in on them, asked how they were doing, see if they needed anything, see if they needed to talk about anything. So the person that you're thinking about, I want you to work this week on beginning to build that relationship. And I want you to think about uh, one other aspect from this text. So Jesus says, you're going to go into a town and you're going to find someone worthy what does that mean? Well, he explains it a little bit. Let's uh, go back and look at the verses real quick. Uh, verse 12, read a household when you enter it. And if the household is worthy, let your peace be on it. But if it is unworthy, let your peace return to you. Okay. So this idea of peace, <clears throat> this is peace in the sense, like we were talking about in the Colossians sense of peace, of reconciliation, of love, of uh being set apart for a certain purpose, being reconciled to God, that kind of peace. And so when Jesus says, you're going to find someone worthy, he's not saying, find someone that you think would be awesome. Find someone that you, you know, is successful. Find someone that has a big audience so that if they turn to Jesus, they'll bring a bunch of other people. That's kind of, whether we admit it or not, that's kind of like what we want to do. We want to we want to take somebody cool and then make them love Jesus so that they'll affect a whole bunch of other people. And then, and then we can kind of take credit for it. That's kind of why we want to do that, right? It's not what Jesus means when he says, find someone worthy. What he's saying is find someone who understands the value. Find someone who understands that you are valuable, who sees you as worthy. And they're going to do that when you give them peace and they accept it and they participate in that peace and they'll have other things for you. Right. And so we have a term that we take out of this. We talk about the person of peace. So I want you to think about someone in your life. As you're thinking about who you're going to, you know, start really developing a relationship with, I want you to think about someone in your life who is a person of peace, someone who uh, understands the value of what you believe, someone who has a spiritual need that you can meet, right? Jesus gave people authority to go out and take care of people's needs. They, they have some kind of need you can meet, a spiritual need, it could be a physical need, you know, maybe they need kids picked up or taken care of or something like that. And um, so you, you want someone who has a need that you can meet and also someone in who God is already working. So in the first century, nobody, not many people had extra food or extra clothes or an extra room. It was just not something that people had a lot of. So if someone, if you go into a village and someone has extra that shows God has been working in their life to make room for you. They're preparing for your arrival, right? So when you're looking for persons of peace, you should be looking for someone that has a need that you can meet and where God has already been working in their life. 
So there's lots of candidates for people that we want to build discipleship relationships with. But as you're thinking about over this weekend, who can I reach out to? Who can I contact? Really think about someone that really is a person of peace, someone who, who has some kind of need that you can meet, but someone in whose life God is already kind of working, even if they don't see it yet. Someone who knows the value of the relationship that you want to have with them. If you can find a person of peace, then it's going to make um, this disciple-making experience a lot easier for you. In fact, Jesus says, hey, if they're not a person of peace, move on. Find a person of peace. Don't waste your time with somebody who's not ready. Don't waste your time with somebody who's not going to listen. Don't waste your time with somebody who doesn't see the value of what you have. Don't waste your time on somebody who's attacking you for what you believe. Move on to the next town. Move on to the next place. So that's what I'm going to leave you with uh, for this weekend until we get back together on Monday night. I want you to think about who around you is a person of peace. Who needs you to reach out to them? Who in your community, in your family, in your neighborhood, who is it that most needs to hear great news? Sketches from Scripture is a production of Parabolos, the production company of author and filmmaker Paul Andrew Skidmore. Subscribe to this podcast and more at skidmore.substack.com.